I am kind of a sucker for reunions, whether it's at the airport and watching families or loved ones be reunited, or even on YouTube, there's a whole catalog of reunion videos that I like to watch from time to time. You perhaps know the kind of video I'm talking about. Various videos often of service women or servicemen returning from a tour of duty, often unexpectedly surprising their family members. These never fail to move me. I remember one particular video of a young boy, probably no older than five or six, surprised by his father. He was in the middle of some activity when his dad approached unseen. And upon recognizing his dad, the video captures all the various emotions on display. Shock, delight, confusion, the sense of being overwhelmed. The boy ends up just like running out of the frame. He couldn't handle it. So overcome. Too much for him. That kind of response in all its beautiful complexity is a reminder that reunions, restorations, are many things. Both a delight, so very welcome, but also disruptive, transformative. They change things. This notion will be useful to keep in mind today as we look this morning at the opening verses of Luke chapter 3. These verses tell of a reunion of sorts, the reunion of God's people with himself. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. God communicates. God breaks forth. And that reunion, that communication is a delight, a good and welcome thing. And it is disruptive, as we will see today and next week when we look at the next section of Luke 3. The whole season of Advent carries with it this reminder that the coming of God and his kingdom is both a delight and a disruption. A delight is we anticipate Jesus, his goodness, the justice and peace that he alone can bring. And it is disruptive as we're reminded that something more is coming, that the way things are won't always be, that our status quo is temporary and subject to God's judgment. The word of God, when he comes, is both a delight and a disruption. This morning, I'd like to focus our attention on the word of God that comes to John here in Luke chapter 3. That's word with small w. As a way of considering our own lives in this Advent season, waiting and anticipating the coming of Christ, the capital W, word of God. And I'd like to group our thinking this morning in kind of three sections. First, the word in history. Second, the word in the wilderness. And third, lastly, a word before the word. Before we jump in, let's let's begin in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for these words recorded by Luke. We thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired and caused him to remember and record these words for us. And we ask now that that same spirit, your Holy Spirit, would enliven our hearts and our minds to see the reality, the truth that these words point us to, perhaps more so this morning than ever before, that we might more fully become your people. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So first, a word in history. Our reading this morning begins with this list of seven leaders, both civic and religious, who reigned during the time of the story that Luke is telling. There's Tiberius Caesar, there's Pontius Pilate, 
And for some reason, I don't know if you noticed this, the mayor of Abilene makes the cut. If there was one word I knew that Sarah was going to get right, it was Abilene, right? Like, of course. But the, obviously, that's not Abilene, the city in western Texas. Is, I don't know. Is, that, is, is Abilene west Texas, or is that like, yes, people are nodding. I'm not from around here. Um, but the list, the inclusion of Abilene, you're like, you're like we know, we know. <laughs> uh, okay, but the inclusion of Abilene in the list is actually this helpful reminder. Uh, it's a reminder that the world that Luke is describing in these first verses is our world. The list of these various leaders sets the stage in a world that we're familiar with. The world of politics, mundane politics, and compromised, untrustworthy authorities. That term tetrarch probably stood out. You're like, I don't know what that means. It's not one we use, but it was the title given to the four different rulers of four different sections of Judea. This had been divided up by the Roman Empire as a way of maintaining the control over the entire region, right? Like divide people up, divided into all local rulers who are in debt to Rome. Ancient historians suggest that the two names listed as high priest achieved that position through bribery, right? They like bribed Roman officials to get that sweet gig. As one writer suggests, these opening verses carry with them the suggestion of division, defeat, conquest, and sordid compromise. I'm not entirely certain. I couldn't find out for sure, but I believe it was Dorothy Sayers who first wrote that Jesus was born when Caesar Augustus thought he ruled the world. In any case, her remarkable play, The Man Born to Be King, is this wonderful reminder that the reality we celebrate at Christmas, God made flesh, the Word made flesh, It took place in a world very much like our own. She just has characters who are prejudiced, who are suffering under oppression, who have encountered the world of dispiriting compromise and disappointment. It's to them that the Savior comes. For many of us, the very notion that God speaks, that God still speaks, can feel like it comes from another world, a world of fairy tales and happy endings, where they all live happily ever after. It feels like the North Pole in so many Christmas movies. Not real. Wherever that is, we think it is not here. This, the world we inhabit, is the rough and tumble world, the world of hard edges, the world of entropy, decline, and loss. The world of God's silence. And the quiet insistence of our text this morning The truth to which Luke the evangelist points us to is that there are not two worlds, the world of God's speech and our own, but one, the world we inhabit, the world in which we suffer and endure is the same world in which God has spoken, in which his life-giving word can still be encountered, received today into this kind of world into our history, into your story, the word of God comes, comes to delight and to destruct. Hold to this promise today. Give ear. Even more than the reality that God speaks in history, Luke's point here, the implication of what he's writing, is that this world, the world of political leaders aspiring to authority, of religious dignitaries, elites who posture and preen, 
is that the word of God is the final word. That in the context of this dominant superpower, these various authorities, the thing that most matters we see in Luke chapter 3 is that the word of God comes to John. This is of greater significance. This is what matters. So the word of God, it comes in history, in our stories, and it is of singular importance. The word in history. The second category is the word in the wilderness. I was reading this week about a man named Adrian Fisher, who is probably the world's foremost designer of mazes. Not just mazes on paper, but like hedgerow mazes. Uh, If you've ever been to like a pumpkin patch, right, there's cornrow mazes. And this article claimed that your enjoyment of that, perhaps here in central Texas, is largely attributed to Adrian Fisher, this British man who lives to design mazes. And one of the features this article described of Fisher's mazes is that counterintuitively, you often get to the center by first moving toward the periphery. You get to the center by moving first toward the edge, away from the center. Luke specifies in verse 2 that the word of God comes to John in the wilderness. This connects with an earlier description of John in Luke 1 as someone who lives out in the desert, the area surrounding Judea. This monk-like existence is described. He lives on the edges, outside mainstream society. And it's out there on the periphery that the word of God is heard and received. The wilderness, of course, is this rich concept in the Bible and in Christian history. It's this place of almost unformed creation where survival is challenging, where weakness and dependence are magnified, our frailty magnified. It's this place of purification, of preparation. And for all these reasons, the wilderness is a place where God is encountered. The people of Israel receive the law, the Torah, in the wilderness. They become God's holy nation in the wilderness. In the desert, Elijah discerns the still, small voice of the Lord. Jesus, through the Gospels, withdraws to be with his Father in wilderness places. The desert mothers and fathers of the church found God there when he could not be found in the heart of empire. God speaks in the midst of history, but is often most clearly heard in the wilderness, on the periphery. His voice is most easily often apprehended in the desert, literally and figuratively. The prophets of Israel, with whom here in Luke 3, John stands in line, physically, socially inhabited the wilderness. They spoke from out of the center. On the periphery, they found and heard from the one who is the true center. Why might this be the case? Because in wilderness places, illusions, distractions are stripped away. The lies we tell ourselves, the stories of our self-sufficiency, our worthiness, the comforts, the entertainments that blind us to the hard reality of our need, our insecurity, the good things that so easily become distracting idols are stripped away. Thinking of those reunion videos, often the children involved are surprised. They're in the midst of some other activity. And they must lay down their toys or whatever it is that is occupying their attention. That they might receive their mother, their father, 
that they might lay hold of them in embrace. They have to put them down. Advent, like the season of Lent, is an invitation to the wilderness. It's an invitation to put things down through the disciplines of fasting and other practices. They are a reminder then that we hunger and thirst for things that this world cannot provide. That we have needs and longings that only Jesus, the soon coming king, can satisfy. They're a reminder that we are with the crowd that goes out to see John, yearning, hungering for something more. This Advent, the remaining weeks of it, may be an invitation for you to strip away those things that distract. Busyness, comfort, literally noise, and enter into the wilderness. That you might hear the word that comes in the wilderness. That you might receive a life-giving word from your Father. A word that delights. A reminder that he's with you and for you. That he speaks still. Now in the midst of all that you're carrying. Your questions, your doubts. Don't let the opportunity this season presents pass by. Seek out the wilderness. Time in the wilderness that you might receive from your heavenly father. Who loves you and still speaks. But also we must remember that God's word is a word that disrupts. It's notable to me that John undertakes his ministry of baptism in the region of the Jordan. You'll remember, of course, that the Jordan is the river that Israel crosses to enter into the promised land. It marks the end of the nation's wilderness wanderings. And here now, John, who receives the word of God in the wilderness, is calling people out to be baptized in the Jordan. There's this kind of reversal. They are coming out from the center and moving to the periphery. The word comes in the wilderness. It also calls us, in some ways, into the wilderness. That list that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, that is a wilderness kind of life. He's been drawn out of the comfort and ease of the center. He's out of step with the world around him. He's moved into this sphere of holiness, costly obedience, into the countercultural way of the cross. Paul, John, they are perpetually on the margins in the wilderness. Their allegiance to the word of God keeps them there. The word of God is disruptive. Jesus speaks about this when he describes himself as coming with a sword, dividing fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. To receive the word of God as it comes in Luke 3, as the most significant thing, is to enter into a wilderness of sorts, of unbelonging in the here and now, unbelonging of our own, among our own families perhaps, unbelonging in a nation that so often demands absolute fidelity, unbelonging in a culture pattern on destructive rhythms of consumption, autonomy. This season reminds us that to confess Christ is in some ways to become an undocumented sojourner here in the present. To be like Paul, to be like John on the periphery, such that we may very well sow in tears, as the psalm we prayed depicted that our lives now become marked by wilderness-like elements. My encouragement to you is do not be caught unaware by this, by the cost of hearing and receiving the word of God. At some level, the word of God will always break your life. But it is worth it. Because in the end, there is joy, as our psalm points us to.
And along the way, as our psalm also suggests, there is joy. And this brings us to our third and final section, a word before the word. There is joy at long last. There is joy now because of what God has spoken fully, definitively, in Jesus Christ. This word of joy, of hope, a word of reunion. God's communication of himself to us. In our reading this morning, Luke describes the message given to John as one of preparation. He has this role of preparing the way for the Lord. That's an idea that Luke picks up from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet describes the glory of God coming to its people. And there's this work of preparation that is needed. It's there in our Malachi passage as well. You all have masks on, so maybe you didn't smell it, but there's incense this morning. And incense is this thing that is used in worship as a, a preparation, an element that signals God's presence. And its roots historically, I've talked about this before, were like the Roman Empire living in the Roman city. It stank, man, like open sewers, all that kind of stuff. And if you were rich enough, if you were noble enough, honored enough, you could pay someone to walk in front of you burning incense so your delicate nostrils would not be assaulted by the reality of what was around you. And the idea was that that incense became this sign of like nobility. Someone of honor is approaching. Someone is coming. It's preparatory. It's preparing the way. That's the same idea in Isaiah. That's the same idea, the role that John plays, preparing the way. And in Isaiah 40 and in Luke 3, this is specifically moral, ethical preparation. The glory of God is coming, so to enter into the glory of God, the people of God have to be made holy, made ready for his presence. They've got to be changed. That's what John is doing, preaching this baptism of repentance, right? People, get ready. God is coming. His glory, his judgment, his goodness. Prepare yourselves. Turn from the idols, from your distractions. Remember your dependence upon God, the dependence you knew, your fathers knew in the wilderness. And that preparation, it takes the form of concrete action, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. We'll, we'll see more of that next week when we look at the verses that follow. But this morning, I think there are two essential things to remember about this work of preparation in this season of preparation. First, I feel like I've been saying this a lot, but we'll say it again. First, the preparatory work is ultimately the work of God. He, you'll notice in our reading, is the one who levels the high places, who makes it as a highway to himself. It is his word that is going forth to accomplish this preparation in the lives of his people. It's his spirit that animates the work of repentance, the work of reformation in our lives. Every season, like Advent, is this temptation where we take on disciplines and practices. There's this temptation to see what we do as paramount. But all the action we might take to prepare is grace. The work of preparation in our lives is the gift of God. And the disciplines, the practices, any rule of life is a work of grace. It's about drawing near to a God of grace. It's a response to the work of his Holy Spirit. God is the one who has made a highway, has removed every obstacle, every mountain and hill. And who, he is the one who makes straight our crooked paths, our work. Your work is merely to cooperate with the faithful and certain work 
that God is doing to prepare you for him. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is preparation, like the name suggests, is merely a precursor. The word given to John, the baptism of repentance, is, you'll notice, for, toward, moving toward the goal of forgiveness of sins, toward the grace of God shown to us in Jesus. The work of preparation is and was so that all people could see the salvation of God. We've talked about this, especially in the essentials class these last few weeks, the holistic nature of God's salvation. The kingdom of God working in every sphere, social, material, individual, spiritual, corporate, it's holistic. But at its very center is this promise of forgiveness and mercy because no one enters the kingdom on their own power. They need forgiveness. They need mercy. And the term forgiveness in verse 3 carries with it this idea of release, of liberation, of getting off scot-free from sentence, from consequences that are deserved. And for the prophets of Israel, this hope of mercy and forgiveness was this feature that they expected to be there for God's people in the end, right? Like far off, the end of time in the future. But in the word Jesus Christ, Luke is saying, this proclamation of forgiveness is spoken now in history over your life and mine. In a mysterious way, this word is spoken today. The idea is, is that this future mercy has been brought near into the present, is erupting now so that the people of God can enter now into the kingdom, into the presence of God, that there is reunion, reunification, restoration today. This is ultimately the goal of God's word, of God's utterance, reunion, restoration, the obliteration of every obstacle that would keep you from him, that would keep you from the goodness of his presence and reign, the leveling of the obstacle of our sin, our past, our shames. This Advent, we remember that we wait for the fullness of God's kingdom. And we hear, we heed the call to live and work for that kingdom now, a kingdom of justice and peace. We live, we work in preparation. Repenting, thinking again, living differently in concrete ways. But what animates all of that, and at the heart of the kingdom that is coming, is this gracious and glorious message that is present. The word, the better, the truer word, that declares you can be forgiven. That declares nothing needs stand in your way. Nothing. The better word, Jesus pronouncing on the cross, it is finished, pronouncing you, beloved daughter, beloved son, welcome back, welcome to the loving embrace of your father. This is your fundamental work of preparation this Advent. You want to get ready? You want to be prepared? Receive this word spoken over you, the word after the word, the word made flesh. Let it disrupt and delight you. Let him disrupt and delight you. Let him humble you in the recognition that you need saving. You need restoring. You need forgiveness. And let him delight you as you realize all that the living God has done, is doing for you. Let this word 
this better, truer word define you. For the word looks upon you in whatever mess you've made of your life. And he says, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. He says, my son, my daughter, welcome home. A glorious reunion is yours and a glorious reunion awaits you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.